will deliver my first big keynote. And by all accounts, it was a slam dunk. It was a home run. And I thought I was on top of the world. I thought, I felt like I won the lottery or, you know, just scored the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl, like leading a large growing church. It was incredible. And we went back to the airport and when we touched down in Toronto, it's like I fell off a cliff. Gary Newhoff has stepped into such a needed space for Christian leaders these past several years. His Meteoric podcast has curated some of the best minds and hearts on leadership. He's a best-selling author and highly requested speaker, and ECFA president Michael Martin discusses all these things with him, including his own story of burnout as a pastor. He's so generous with this story and the wisdom from it is gold for leaders. So stick around, it's too good to miss. And people had been telling me for years I was gonna burn out and I didn't believe them. That's for weak people, that's for people who can't hack it. I'm not one of those people, you know, I'm the exception to the rule and you're always the exception to the rule until you're not. All right, well, we are so privileged to be joined today by Carrie Newhoff uh, here on the ECFA Behind the Seal podcast. Carrie, welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Michael. Hey, you bet. I feel like I know you well. I'm a regular listener to your leadership podcast, so this is fun to have you on. This is like a free hour of leadership coaching for me, um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it and all the wisdom that you'll have to share with our audience here. Well, I've been looking forward to it too. So yeah, thank you for all that you do to serve the church and people in the faith space. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And as you and I have talked about, a real focus of a lot of our conversations recently here at ECFA have been around the idea of healthy leadership. I know that's something that you care about. Uh, you spent many years in the church. You're you're coaching so many ministry leaders. Um, you have your own story of recovering from burnout, which I'd love to talk with you about. Um, you're also a recovering attorney like me, so I think we're going to have a lot of uh -huh, good there you go. today. So it'll be good. Well, I want to unpack too, Carrie. Somehow in the midst of all the uh, things that you keep up with. You find time to write and you're also, uh, you've got your blog and many books. And I think one in particular, uh, I hear a lot of leaders, even with our community, within our community talking about is didn't see it coming, right? And this is the whole idea. I don't know if you use the words of traps, but I would say these are some traps that leaders can fall in. And the idea is, um, you know, there's many that don't see it coming, but we should see some of these things coming. And the good news is we can do something about it, right? Yeah, totally. I would call them traps. And I just found that 10, 15 years into my leadership, I started to notice a theme that was showing up in my leadership, but also the people I knew, the people I followed, et cetera. And that is that there are identified seven, but there are a number of common pitfalls that nobody really sees coming that often take out leaders. So things like burnout or cynicism, oh. some of them are fatal. Some of them basically you just kind of fade away as a leader, like pride. I don't know, like what is that? It's a cap on your leadership, but it's there. And what surprised me about the seven identified that I identified is they showed up in my life, but in so many other lives as well. And they seem to be that thing that's under the radar, under the surface, but nobody really talks about. So I really wanted to talk about them in the book. 
Yeah, very good. Well, and I appreciate how candid it was, just how practical you're willing to open up and share about your own story. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human, like we're not alone in some of these things. And so that's really where I would love to start is even on that point of burnout. You talk about that. You talk about your own story. If you're not burnt out on talking about burnout, uh, just for those who maybe aren't as familiar, just have you share a little bit about that experience for you and, and kind of what God brought you through. I think that would be helpful. Yeah, so I had been um, briefly in law before I felt a call into ministry and then went into ministry and for 10 years led what became a rapidly growing church. We started just with a handful of people, not in a church plant, but in historic congregations that had been stuck for decades and had dwindled down to the faithful few. And they called me in as sort of a last ditch effort, like if this guy can't revive it, we'll turn off the lights and go home. <laughs> and, you know, I started as a student and we started to see growth almost from Sunday one. It was pretty uh. incredible and God really provided. So we went from, you know, it was three churches that banded their money together so they could afford a student pastor who was me. And we started to see growth almost immediately from, you know, six at one church, 14 at the second. And then the third church I would go to on a Sunday had 23 people at it on average. And right. we started to see that go to 30. And then six became eight, became 10, became 15, became 30. So eventually we we outgrew those buildings and we built a new building. And in within a decade, we had become the fastest growing church in the country in our denomination. And also, I think it was like the third largest in the denomination I was a part of at the time. Right. And I just had no way of knowing how to respond to that kind of growth. I mean, you try to keep up, but it's like you're on the treadmill and the treadmill just keeps getting faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. <laughs> and I'm an Enneagram 8, so I thought I could keep up. I thought I'm just going to keep going and I'll drive a truck through it. And that worked for years. Now, there were casualties. There was roadkill. I mean, my wife wouldn't say she really enjoyed those years. I don't think I was the optimal dad to my two sons when I was in my 30s. I mean, I was there. I wasn't like a classic, classic absent father who never went to games. No, I went to the games. But was I emotionally checked in? Was I emotionally healthy? No, I wasn't. But my formula was more people just equals more hours. And that's oh, the only wow. way I knew how to scale it. So I was cheating sleep. I was sleeping four, five, six hours a night. I'm not good on that level of sleep, but I thought I can just, I'll get away with it. And then about 11 years into that journey, I stopped getting away with it. Uh, ironically, I was at the top of my game. I was here, I'm doing this podcast from Atlanta. I was in Atlanta, just down the road at North Point. Uh, wow. I... I got to get up in front of 2,500 leaders gathered from around the world, deliver my first big keynote in the United States. And by all accounts, it was a slam dunk. It was a home run. Uh, and I thought I was on top of the world. I thought, I felt like I won the lottery or, you know, just scored the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl, like leading a large growing church, just got to speak at North Point. Andy was in the front row. Reggie Joyner was there. I'm like, I've, I've arrived. Wow. Emily in, it was incredible. And we went back to the airport and when we touched down in Toronto, it's like I fell off a cliff. Uh. I had no idea it was coming, but my body just stopped working. 
I mean, Greg McEwen writes about it a few years later. This was in 2006. Greg McEwen wrote about it in existentialism or, no, sorry, what did he call it? Not existentialism. That's Nietzsche. Uh, ah, the name essentialism. Thank you. There we go. Essentialism, where he said, if you fail to protect the asset, you're going to end up in serious trouble. And I was in serious trouble. My, I didn't clear a finish line, so my body did. And wow. I was exhausted, like beyond tired. So I lost my passion, my joy. I got a lot of brain fog. I got out of bed every day, but I couldn't function properly anymore. So that started in May of 2006. I somehow got through May and June. And when it came to July, I had three weeks scheduled to be off. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to get better. And uh, I really didn't do anything over those three weeks. But by the end of the three weeks, I wasn't better. I was worse. And I'm like, wow. Oh. So I went <laughs> to the elders and I just said, look, I'm broken. I don't know what happened. And people had been telling me for years I was going to burn out and I didn't believe them. Uh, and I thought in my head, pride, that's for weak people. That's for people who can't hack it. I'm not one of those people. I'm strong. I could do this. You know, I'm the exception to the rule, and you're always the exception to the rule until you're not. And uh, so it's like my body went on strike and my mind went on strike, and it was awful. I was probably clinically depressed that summer, and gradually little flickers of light started to come back. But I spent the next three to five years getting back to normal, but also realizing that my normal was dysfunctional. That if I went back, because when you're sick like that, and people who have burned out know what that feels like. It's awful. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But you're, you're like, I just got to get back to normal. But then the light started to dawn, and I'm like, wait a minute. Normal got me burned out. If I go back to normal, like this is going to happen again in a month or six months or a year or five years, and I don't want it. So I started to become a student. As I got like to 70 80% functioning, and I could like do my day job and, and people didn't, on the outside, you didn't really notice a difference, but on the inside, I still felt pretty broken. Um, I started to study, okay, how, how can I make sure this never happens again? So uh -huh. I read books, I got coaching, I got counseling. I listened, I don't think I listened to podcasts. It was sort of pre-podcast, but you know, it was like, I was just voraciously consuming information to try to figure out what I needed to do. And by about year five, I got, back to 100%, but it was a new normal. Gosh. And I've been living that for, well, 15 years now. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. It just it just works. So I haven't burned out. I get tired. Like I've had a really busy stint as we're doing this interview, but I know I'm not burning out. I know I'm just, I'll get a good night's sleep tonight. I got one thing on tomorrow and I fly home and I'll be good as gold tomorrow night. I've become a student of my body, a student of my limits, a student of uh, what I can't do. And ironically, by focusing on where my limits are, I've accomplished way more in the last 15 years than I did in that decade and a half wow. or now. So uh. it's this weird paradox. Yeah. And I want to pick back up on that too and just come back to some of those things. Because what I love hearing in that story, not only is things shifted for you, but you've been able to sustain that, maintain that. So there's things that I'm sure we can all take away from that experience 
um, you know, from you. So I want to come back to that. But even kind of going back to, I think, as I was listening, and thank you for sharing just your story and what you've walked through. Uh, it is so helpful. Um, one of the things that strikes me, Carrie, too, is just the danger of this particular trap is you're even sharing in your own life. I mean, you had people sort of whispering to you or saying things, but just like how suddenly, like how suddenly this all came on, uh, that really kind of strikes me in part of what makes this whole burnout thing even so dangerous. I think there's a couple of layers of burnout. So what I had would be your classic textbook burnout, not functioning, couldn't do it. And I think it's a little bit like I haven't had a heart attack, but you hear stories all the time about people, you know, the plaque builds up in your arteries and one day you're just fine and the next you're on the floor non-responsive. It was a little bit like that when it just came to, and of course there was nothing wrong with me physically other than I had run at such a pace for 11-ish years. And probably I did a decade in university before that. So probably 20 some odd years I was burning the candle at both ends. I don't know, maybe through high school too. Who knows? I don't know. But it was a long time where I had cheated. And Uh then it's like my body went on strike. I didn't declare a finish line. I didn't take the Sabbath. So the Sabbath took me. It's a really interesting scripture. I know your audience is mostly... um, Christian, I would think. And if you're not, this is just a fun story anyway. Second Chronicles chapter 36 tells the story of the Israelite people. So of course, God brings his people into the promised land. You get the 10 commandments. It's like, hey, you're supposed to take a Sabbath. Every seven years, let the land go fallow because the land is going to be better. That's good agricultural principle, but it's actually in the Jewish code. And then every seven sevens, every 49 years is supposed to be the year of Jubilee. So- Interesting. Most biblical scholars say they don't think the year of fallow, the Sabbath was not universally celebrated. The Passover wasn't universally celebrated. The year of letting your land go fallow, they don't think was really celebrated either because it's like, what are we going to do? Live without crops for a year. And there's very little evidence that the Jubilee was ever actually celebrated. And then what happens is Israel reaches its peak as a culture. It goes into decline. They get tackled by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and many people get carried off into the Babylonian exile. And basically, Israel is left desolate. And there's a very haunting verse in Second Chronicles chapter 36 that simply says, and when I first read it, it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. And all it says is, the land finally got its Sabbath rest. Oof. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, so you guys didn't give this a Sabbath. Yeah, I told you every seven years, I told you every 49 years for generations, you burned it at both ends. You you flouted the laws of physics and my law, and which are not that dissimilar, by the way. And and now, guess what? The land's resting and you're in exile in Babylon. How's that mm. working for you? And I feel <laughs> like I had I had one of those moments where my body involved, I, I, I wanted so bad to get healthy but my body just is like, nope, we're on strike. And it was a lot of August of 2006. This started in May. By August yeah. of 2006, I spent much of the month sleeping. Not like depression sleeping, but just when you finally slow down, you realize how exhausted you are. So wow. I was like napping two or three times a day, sleeping eight or 10 hours a night, and it wasn't enough. And when I wasn't sleeping, I was crying. So it was all this unresolved loss, grief, you know, emotional breakdown. 
combined with deep, deep, deep fatigue. And then in September, after a month of purging, I finally <laughs> felt the first flicker of hope and light come back in. I remember talking was actually with my mom. My mom swung by one day and she was concerned for me. But of course, on the outside looking in, you don't know how bad it is on the inside. Uh. Some people think I'm a three out of 10. I'm like a zero out of 10 on the inside. But in talking with my mom, a little bit of hope and passion burned for the future. And I'm like, that's amazing. So if you're in real burnout, there's no, you don't need a diagnosis. You, you go get one, go get some professional help. But like, you know, Oh, nice. the brakes are on. I can't even find the gas pedal. I'm I'm toast. But there's something else. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. But I just call it because I've, I've journeyed with thousands of leaders who have gone through this. I call it low-grade burnout. And low-grade burnout is you have some of the symptoms of burnout. And my working definition of low-grade burnout is the functions of life continue. Get up, do your job, take the kids to sports, go to church. If you're a preacher, preach a sermon, whatever happens. You can do your job. You can do your job. The functions of life continue, but the joy of life is gone. And I think that describes a lot of people. If you look back on 20-year-old you, and where are you now in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you're like, I used to be so idealistic. I used to be so joyful. I used to have hope. And I admit, it's a tough season to be alive in right now in global history, but you know, that joy is gone. You're, you're phoning it in. You're, you're preparing your message if you do what I do, but like you don't feel it. Or you're on a date night, but you're kind of checked out. Or you're at the kids' games, but you're not really watching. You're on your phone. You're just in this gray zone where you're never really happy. You're never really depressed. And I think that's a lot. Of people. Huh. I think that's a form of burnout. So if you find it, and I, I think when you, when you compare those two definitions, you probably captured the majority of the population at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. We can kind of put, we can insert ourselves so much into that. Like, yeah, whether you're someone listening and you're like, yep, I've got, you know, I'm kind of on that extreme end of burnout and all. But yeah, I like how you talk about that with even just at a low grade level. I mean, that's something that all of us deal with. You know, let's be mindful. Let's look for those warning signs. Um, I just think that's so helpful. I think another thing too that you were saying, Carrie, you you, you slipped in mom and, you know, I think in tough times, don't we all need to just kind of call mom, but yeah. um, <laughs> you talk about too, just the role that, you know, family and friends and like your elder board and others who were kind of there journeying alongside you. I mean, there's the work that you did like personally as a leader, getting things back on track, but talk to us about the community, you know, that came around you as well and what that looked like. Super essential. I mean, my wife was unbelievable. She was going through her own struggles at the time. Her name's Tony, and she wrote about it in a book um, about marriage called Before You Split. And she was just so gracious, so kind. I remember that August. She's like, yeah, if you need to go lie down, go lie down. If you're crying, you know, I'll put my arms around you. And she was just a gem. Um, My small group. I'm still in small group with some of those people from 16 years ago. We'll see them this weekend. I think we're going skiing. And I remember their name, Rob and Rose, were just incredible friends. I had another friend at the time who called me one day because he knew how bad it was. And he just said, I know you don't believe this right now, but one day the sun will rise again. Uh That gave me hope. So it was the ability to grieve and to be yourself in the community that you were leading. Now, I didn't get up there on Sunday in front of hundreds of people and go, hey, I'm bleeding out. You know, I didn't do that. But the people who needed to know knew. 
And you hope, and I know not every church is like this, and I know not every workplace is like this. I get mail from people who say, I told my boss I'm burning out, and he fired. Uh, yeah, I. first of all, that's reprehensible. And secondly, I wish we didn't live in a world like that, but we live in a world like that. So I was fortunate. You know, you put enough into your elders, you hope if you ever need it, you'll get it back. And I got it back in, in spades. They were, they offered me a sabbatical. I'm like, oh, if I disappear now, I'm never coming back. And I feel finished, but I don't think God is done with me. So thank you. But no, I'm going to soldier on. And for me, that turned out to be a good choice. I don't think it's a good choice for everybody. But that's that's another thing I've learned too. You know, you mentioned the sustained um, pace. And yeah, it's been 17 years this year since I burned out. Oh, yeah, 23 to 2006. I haven't burned out. I've been tired. I've been frustrated. But one of the, one of the signs of burnout is that sleep and rest no longer refuel you. If you're tired, you go to bed on time, you sleep, until you're rested and you get up and you have a good day. If you're burned out, you sleep for 12 hours and you feel awful the next day. And like you should within two or three days, even if you're really tired, be able to recover. And I've been able to do that usually in one day actually. But but the the mantra has been to live in a way today that helps you thrive tomorrow. So I just run everything I do and I talk about that and didn't see it coming through my wife and I did a year end review where we're like, okay, let's, we went out for dinner to our favorite restaurant and we're like five categories, spiritual, physical, emotional, relational, financial. How are we doing? What kind of year was it? And in, in all five of those categories, there needs to be reserve in the tank. There has to be, there has to be some margin. You know, you think about margin. We live in a marginless world. Because I'm not talking to you. I have my phone on permanent, do not disturb. I think it's gone, do not disturb for seven years now. But like, I know there's going to be text messages when I'm done. Yes. And then I'm going to have Slack. And then I got some stuff to do in Asana. And then someone probably emailed me. And then there'll be a knock on the door. And da, 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 da. So, I mean, we live in this marginless world. But margin is, margin is when you're alone in the woods and there's nothing. You don't even have a signal. That's margin. Margin is you wake up and there's more day than there is things to do. Margin is you linger in your time with God. Margin is what it was like. You remember that year between kindergarten and grade one, the summer? Did it not feel like forever when you got out at school in the spring (laughs) and you didn't have to go back until Labor Day or whatever that was? That felt like what a decade feels like today. Yeah. That's margin. And you woke up and what were you? You were bored. You're like, what am I going to do today? It's like, I don't know, go in the backyard or uh, go call your friend or go make up this game. You weren't entertained. Like that's margin. And we've lost it. What I've done over the last 16, 17 years is I put margin back in my life. Yeah. And speak to the leaders who may be saying like, that sounds nice, but maybe they're just not there yet. Like tell them why it's so important to fight for that. It's really important to fight for it. And here's the, the promise, because I'm guessing you have driven leaders listening to this podcast. I'm a very driven person. So the payoff is you get more done in less time. You there accomplish you more. You work less. It's so paradoxical. When I burned out in 2006, our church was maybe home to 11, 1,200 people. And I thought that was amazing. But that was the only responsibility God had given me plus my family and friends and that kind of thing. And I couldn't couldn't handle it. My formula was off, right? More people equals more hours. 
So he completely stops me, deconstructs me, painstakingly reconstructs me. And that, that took forever, those three to five years. I'm like, oh, what am I going to... And then one day I didn't wake up and went, oh, I'm 100% normal. But I realized a couple months down the road, at one point I'm like, I don't feel empty anymore. Like I feel yeah. good. And so I eventually got there and that's been well over a decade in that space. But what what God was doing was preparing me for what was ahead. I hadn't started recreationally blogging yet, which would turn into millions of people showing up at my website. I hadn't started a podcast yet. I wasn't even listening to podcasts. Wow. I think they were invented in 2006. And, <laughs> right. You know, I had no idea I was going to be interviewing the top leaders in the world. I, I didn't know I'd be keynoting on stages around the world. I didn't know that I would have the privilege of building into millions of leaders. Like I had no idea what was coming. And what's really weird is I work fewer hours now than uh-huh. I did then. And before I stepped back at our church, we went from 1,200 people maybe-ish in 2006 to 3,500 to 4,000 people who called our church home. And I was doing that in less time, in a much more healthy way, leading a much more stable team because I was a better leader. So there's the promise. It's like, do less, accomplish more. Andy Stanley wrote about that 20 years ago in Next Generation Leader. I didn't believe him at the time. I believe him now. And Andy never burned out. I have a buddy of mine, John Acuff. John, you know, I remember when I first started talking about this story publicly, we were backstage somewhere. And John just goes, so Kerry, is this just like a rite of passage? Like Uh, does every leader have to burn out? Because he hasn't burned out and he's well into his 40s now. I'm like, that's a really good question. And I think the answer is no, you don't have to burn out. You could. If you keep burning the candle at both ends, you know, pedal to the metal, yeah, you're in trouble. But it, it is paradoxical to me that I'm working fewer hours than I was 10 years ago and impacting more people. It's awesome. you think about Jesus, I'm not I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, I'm, you know, but Jesus prepared for 30 years, preached for three, during those three years was actively on a regular basis walking away from crowds because he was uh. hiding off, praying with his heavenly father, and he changed the world. He had a wow. 10 to 1 preparation to execution ratio. And we do it the other way. If we prepare one part for every 10 parts we do something, we think we're a pro. Jesus did it the other way around. And so I want to continue to learn from that. This year, my team went to a four-day four work week. And huh. we didn't know that we could compress work into four days, not four 10-hour days, just like, let's try to do in four what we used to do in five. You can do it, but you know what that forced me to do? I'm like, well, I have Saturdays and Sundays off now. Three days in a row, do you know how bored you can get? And a little boredom is good, but I need more hobbies. I need more friends. I need more of this. So yeah. I'm filling up the rest of my life. And that that means I can do my work out of the overflow. Yes. So good. No, I appreciate that. I was, yeah, what a gift that health, you know, has been not to you, but I think of so many that, yeah, have been impacted in that decision. That's so awesome. And my wife and my kids, the most important. Yes. You know, like they, my wife would not trade Carrie in his 50s for Carrie in his 30s. Uh, she loved me then. She loves me a lot more now. And you know what? We live in an age where social media has, has really changed our thinking. And yeah, some of your listeners have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. I have lots of followers on social. It's great. Does it really matter if some guy in California thinks I'm amazing if my wife 
doesn't want to be in the same room with me. That's right. Or, the guy in California is not coming to my funeral. My wife will be, I'm sure I'm going to predecease her. My children will be at my funeral. And they don't care how many million downloads my podcast has. They don't care how many copies of my book I sold. They don't care what my last quarter was. And they honestly don't care how much money there was in the bank. What my yeah. kids care about is, did he have time for me? Was he wow. kind to me? Was he fully present? You know, you think about those people who will be at your funeral. They're not the thousands of people you're trying to impress right now. Uh-huh. They're the people who often get the leftovers because you're so busy giving it all at work. So I've said to my kids who are now 31 and 27, I've said, I wish I could get my 30s back because I'd be a more present. And they're like, oh, dad, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, eh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I think it was pretty bad. But now I can't, I can't get my 30s back. Yeah. But I've tried to be a much more attentive, present, loving, focused dad. And at the end of the day, if everybody unfollows you and your family and your friends love you, you've had a successful life. And your relationship with Jesus is intact. You've done great. You've done great. Wow. That's right. Hey, I say we just pause and just like let that sink in. That's so good. Hey, there's one other thing to carry that I just I want to ask you about related to burnout. There are a couple other of these uh traps, if you will, leadership Look traps here. that I want to do a pride uh and compromise too. But one last thing about burnout, I thought, and this is so yeah, we've kind of come full circle in your story, but just going backwards one more time, I thought this was yeah. an insightful thought is you were talking about how um, in in the realm of burnout, like unhealthy motivations and how that ultimately led you to a place of burnout. And you say, it doesn't matter how much water you pour in your bucket if your bucket is filled with holes. And so, man, I just, that struck me and I thought, wow, you know, that's even another starting point is like looking back and saying even beyond kind of where we're all presently in this conversation with burnout is like what are those things that kind of led us to this place and so there's even like a deeper level of soul searching i think right that we all need to do before we just move on too quickly from this so let me just say i don't want to paint a before and after picture everything's amazing now and back then it was a disaster there were some good things that happened and there's still some stuff i struggle with on a daily basis and motivation is one of but if I look back on my 30s, right, a lot of, there, it's easy to get very proud of a church that's growing. You know, it's Tim Keller who says, don't let success go to your head and failure go to your heart. But I was guilty as charged until I burned out with that, where success went to my head and failure went to my heart. And I had to really make sure that I was going to be properly motivated. There was one day in particular, because, you know, as a preacher, you you know people are having roast pastor after you finish. And I always want to improve. I want to be a better communicator. And some of that is very healthy. Like, do you think the Apostle Paul was ambitious? I do. I think he was right. ambitious. You know, I have one, one guy who says, I think it's unproven but interesting theory, that Jesus said, okay, Peter, we're going to build the church on you. And then Peter's like, well, I don't know about the Gentiles, and I don't know about this. And then he's like, all right, I need to plan B. Paul, off your horse. Come on, Paul. I'm like, well, that's plausible, right? Because Paul's so motivated. At times, he gets all up in your face in Second Corinthians and places like that. So God uses ambition. But mine was really fueled by an insecurity and a striving that was not. And on my bad days, it still is. 
But I remember coming back from preaching one day and asking Tony, my wife, I'm like, well, how was that? And she said, it was a good message. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like good or like really good. And she goes, no, it was, it was really good. And I'm like, okay, like really good or excellent. And she kind of looked at me and she said, Carrie, it was a really good message. I said, okay, what could I have done to have made it excellent? And she just looked at me and she just said, I don't know what that hole in the bottom of your soul is, but I am incapable of filling it. Uh, so it's Tony we need to thank for that. Thank uh, <laughs> you for the fact that I'm alive today. She uh, didn't kill me. That was nice. Um, you know, and she could have. I that forced me to really come to terms with what I would la later label performance addiction. That somewhere along the line, when I was a kid, I I confused performance with love. Like, oh, if I get good grades, oh, if I do well, oh, if I'm the leader, then I get loved. Now, my parents didn't believe that, but you know, your wires get crossed, and I had that that belief as a, as a kid and it, it chased me into my adulthood. You know, I had a conversation with Gordon McDonald who wrote ordering uh -huh. your uh, private world. He has a whole section on being driven versus being called. And yeah. I, think, oh, I am a driven person, but I think a lot of that drive when it's unredeemed and unsanctified can come from an extremely unhealthy place. Now God can use it. In my case, it comes from an unhealthy place. God can use it but he wants to sanctify, he wants to redeem, he wants to make holy. So I'm still very driven, but I also realize they can't all be gems. It's my job to show up prepared, to do my homework, to, to be ready. Um, it's not all gonna land the way I want it to land. And as much as things are still pretty much going up and to the right, there's gonna be a day where nobody listens to my podcast. There's gonna be a day where nobody invites me to speak. There's going to be a day where nobody cares what I think anymore. And I try to think about that day and say, and who am I going to be on that day? Good. Just as loved, just as cared for by God, maybe not by everybody, but by God, um, hopefully by the people closest to me that I, I want the people closest to me to have the best experience of me. Huh. So we've been working so hard on that in our marriage. And, you know, to give you an idea of where we are at this point, you know, I like everything in order. I like everything organized. I like, you know, da, 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 let's have it all. Because I find if there's chaos at home, there's enough chaos in the world. I just like a little bit of order in my I house. Probably too much, too much, Michael. <laughs> but, you know, Tony, Tony, let me know. We do a lot of cooking at home. We go out once in a while, but we cook a lot at home. And she's like, sometimes the kitchen isn't a happy place because I want the meal served at such and such a time. And I want it all cleaned up before we're done. She has a different approach. She's an amazing cook. So yeah. one of her goals this year is a happy kitchen. Hey, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, I. it is my response. It's not her responsibility to change. It's my responsibility to make a happy kitchen. So, you know, how can I make sure that those meals, and I've gotten a lot better over the years, but there's still that last, like, little bit I got to work on. And so well, we're working on that. So good. No, I echo you in that. I think... Just, yeah, if, if there's a takeaway from all of this that we would all just pause and um, 
Yeah, do that self-examination, the hard work of that. I mean, that's such a key to avoiding some of these things. And it's an ongoing work, so I appreciate your encouragement in that. And God can redeem it and use it, and we've seen him do it, you know, and so that's awesome. Hey, I do want to switch gears to um, just moving on to this uh, this next area, which is pride. And boy, pride, it's... uh, so connected to a lot of these other traps. I mean, you even talk about how I think that's a common ingredient, you know, right? That's involved in so many of these traps. I know from our vantage point here at ECFA and a lot of our work is helping organizations to like proactively do integrity well, to avoid, you know, any kind of scandals or things of that nature. Um, But I'll say from my seat, as I look at any situation where there is one of those, a fall, a failure, a scandal, whatever word you want to use, like pride, pride is right there, you know, at the top. But I, I really like to carry the point that you make that there's a lot of talk today about, you know, the narcissistic leader and just all of these kinds of things. But you make the point that like, maybe in the same way that there's a low grade burnout amongst everyone, like pride is something we all deal with. Like we all need to be on the lookout for for that. So yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. Like why why do we all need to be on the lookout for this issue of pride? Well, I think it is, as you hinted at, too easy to say, well, I'm not a narcissist. I know a narcissist. I work for a narcissist. Maybe my pastor is a narcissist, but I'm not a narcissist and let ourselves off the hook. But I know way more people who struggle with pride, not out of an inflated sense of self, but out of an insecurity. And basically, if you, I I tried to define pride and the way I've defined it for the purpose of, of this conversation is pride is simply an obsession with self. When I'm so obsessed with myself that I can't focus on the fact that I'm talking to Michael Martin, when I'm so focused on how do I look, how do I feel, how am I coming across? Like, you know, and as a leader, I think I've heard Charles Stanley say this, and he's absolutely right. Like, the best message is you're not thinking about how you're doing. You are thinking about how your audience is doing, whether you're honoring God in the moment, like, when you lose, you know, as Eminem said, you lose yourself in that moment. You just, the greatest art, the greatest athletic performance. I don't think the guy going around the bases or running for the touchdown is thinking, this is me in the history books. I mean, maybe there's a few narcissists, but you're you're so focused on your craft. You're so focused on your art. You're so focused on the task that you kind of forget yourself. You lose yourself. And I want to, I want to think about myself less. And I would say my pride was born out of insecurity. Uh-huh. You know, why was I hesitant to share the stage of my 30s? It was because I wanted to be the best preacher. I wanted to be the guy that everybody talked about. If That's pretty ugly when you say it out loud. Uh-huh. And, you know, I say to a friend of mine yesterday, I said, it's funny that the thing that I have become best known for in the leadership space is the very thing in which I talk the least, my leadership podcast. That good, a good interview for me is where I speak 10% of the time or less and the guest talks 90% of the time or more. So I think that's a good podcast. I think it's a good interview. So it's basically when I shut up, that's what got elevated. I'm like, good lesson in there, Newhoff. Good lesson. In there. So <laughs> there's more to it yeah. than that. <laughs> but a lot of that was just driven by my insecurity. And yeah. you know, I love the way Tim Keller uh, defines the gospel, it's to be fully known and fully loved. And I think if you're insecure, you don't want to, you're afraid. Oh, if people know who I am, they're not going to love me. And so I got dressed a certain way. I can look a certain way. No, I don't want to be a slob. On the other hand, 
there's a limit to what clothes can do. There's a limit to how much you should think about it. There's a limit to what money can do and what it can't do. There's a limit to what success can do and can't do. Uh-huh. And so I think holding it loosely, are you, is your identity tied to what you do? That's a really big issue in a lot of, a lot of things. So I'm working on a daily basis to try to hold those things much more loosely, try to not be afraid of being fully known and fully loved. You know, if I'm fully loved, you can't really fully know me. If you fully know me, you won't love me. It's like, well, I want to be fully known, particularly to those closest to me. Also believing that God fully loves me in the state that I am. Right. And, and then that begins to 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 eat away at at the pride. And I think for my pride, learning to share the spotlight, learning to shut up and let others contribute, learning that I'm not the only person with the answer, learning to cultivate the wisdom and lean into the wisdom of others has been a really good exercise. So you know, I think the antidote to pride is humility. That's right. Yeah. Humility and that. Another to carry is, you know, you talk about accountability, uh, which is the A. That's the A in the ECFA. And our name there is is accountability. Yeah. And how that's, I think you use, a, you describe it like it's a threat. <laughs> it's a threat to pride. So tell us a little bit about how accountability, you know, plays into all that. How do you see it? Well, that goes back to the fully known, fully loved. So I think one of the things with pride is, you need to have an open dialogue with the people around you about whether you're hogging the spotlight, whether other people should get it. And I think for leaders, the spotlight is a real challenge, particularly if you're a, a public speaker like I am. And so what I like to do is just kind of open it up Ugh. the platter and say, okay, where should I be involved? Where should I not be involved? Let other people speak into it. Because if you if you're driven by pride from insecurity or narcissism, you're going to grab onto things really tightly and you're never going to let them go because you're afraid the moment you do, other people are going to take it. So one of the values of our church, we we worked through this value when I was lead pastor, is simply take the low place. Am yeah. I willing to serve or do I expect to be served? And one of the reasons I put that you know, on in the values of our church, we work through it as a team is because I, I need to remember that. I I will not take the low place. I'll take the high place. And so I'd, I'd try to model that in my life. I don't always get it right, but I think that can help. Yeah, say that values. Kind of you build it into your culture, right? No, that's right. Yeah, Carrie, say that, say that value one more time. Take the low place. Take the Do low I place. Do I expect to be served? What What, what is it? There's always a question. I don't have it in front of me. Am I willing to serve or do I expect to be served? Mm. Some wow. of my favorite people at our church, you know, they run really busy lives during the week. And we still have one portable location. They show up at 530 in the morning and they're hauling gear, sometimes in a blizzard in the winter or in the blistering sun in the summer. And these are people who are really great leaders in their own right, and they just take the low place. Love it. Sounds Love a lot like Jesus. So inspiring. <sighs> Sounds a lot like Jesus to me. Mm-hmm. You know, what? do I do I want to be at the front of the line? And I love, I hate lines, so I love being at the front. <laughs> or am I willing to give my place up to someone else? Am I willing to hold the door? Do I have to have a designated parking spot or am I okay parking at the back? Do I have to be recognized and known? I mean, we're getting right into scriptural territory. It's like, hey, 
The Pharisees, they love to be greeted in the marketplace. They love to be recognized. They love their honorary titles. They love their flowing robes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we have equivalents like that today in leadership. And I have to make sure that I don't just get totally enamored of all the trappings of that. Oh, that's right. Hey, one other practical question, kind of along those lines, you talk about how uh, you made a really intentional decision. Sounds like you're still doing this today, but for a ministry leader to hold with open hands or to kind of put this out and say, okay, let others speak into the commitments that I'm making, the where I'm saying yes, you know, what that looks like. Yeah. Tell us just for those who might be interested in that idea, what does that look like? Well, when I was still lead pastor of the church, I had a lot of speaking opportunities, and I would bring those opportunities on a regular basis to my leadership team on staff and to the elders. And I said, you tell me where the line is. I also right. gave the elders full financial disclosure. You guys know how much I made at the church. Here's how much I'm making on the outside, and this is what we're doing with the money. And I said, hey, you want to see my tax return? Like I was, they never asked for them, but I'm like every year I offered like, I will give you full transparency with that. So I, I really wanted to make sure that there was deep accountability there and no question about, oh, you're more interested in your side hustle or the speaking or the writing of books than you are in being the pastor of our local church. And I think that's a very gray area for accountability. One of the other things, Michael, and I know we're pushing on time here that I decided on, and it's different, is I decided early on to separate my personal finances from the church's. So wow. if I made some speaking income or a book deal or that kind of thing, it didn't flow through the church. Now, I gave full transparent disclosure to the elders on all of that. But the reason I didn't do that is I often had seen pastors and churches get so enmeshed in that that it becomes impossible to separate the two, which means that pastors often overstay their welcome or their effectiveness because <laughs> that's where their bread is buttered. And so I had something I could step into when I stepped away from ministry. I didn't know it would become what it would become, but having that separation, but the open disclosure was so, so healthy in our church. Yeah, I can totally see that. And I see a lot of humility you wouldn't say that because I guess you can't if if you're being humble, but I see that and I appreciate that model. Well, Carrie, too, we, we did promise we talk about one more, one more trap. Yeah, Honestly, this is a good landing spot, too, is uh, another one you talk about is compromise. Compromise and how the antidote to that is character. We should be working twice as hard on our character than we do our competency. Why is, and I guess we're kind of ending where you really began, which is this point on character, but... Yeah, maybe just kind of give us a closing charge around that. Why is, it seems kind of basic, fundamental, but why is it that we need to keep character really front and center of our leadership? Well, if you think about the business leaders, political leaders, and church leaders that simply aren't in leadership anymore because of some scandal, you have to ask why. And when I was a younger leader, I always thought, oh, you know, you don't make it in leadership because you're not smart enough. You don't have the right strategy. And Generally, that's not why leaders flame out. Some of the yeah. people who are no longer in ministry, no longer in politics and business, were some of the brightest, smartest, most articulate people out there. So it wasn't their skill level. Like competency gets you in the room, but character keeps you in the room. If you think about, and I imagine that there are leaders who fell who we're all imagining in our mind now, 
The reason they fell was their character. They took something that didn't belong to them. They stole, fraud, whatever. Um, they were impossible to work for. Just yes. the boss from a place other than heaven and people eventually got rid of them. Or they slept with somebody that they weren't married to or abused somebody or what? whatever. Those are all character issues, all character issues. And doesn't mean they're not Christian. Doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love them. But what it does mean is that that inability to attend to their inner life, their outer life was fantastic, but the inner life was so important. And it's that inner life, I think, first of all, that God really pays attention to. And secondly, you know, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. I think it's really important to make that clearer and clearer. And it's not like you're perfectly in check with your character one day, and then the next morning you wake up to someone you're not married to. It's a whole, it's a thousand little compromises. It's um, a text chain that just kind of could have been taken two ways. That went to private messaging that nobody had access to, and on and on and on, or a bank account that nobody knew about. Fast. And that's why, like right now, while I'm having this conversation with you, there are three to five people who have full access to all of my accounts, including my text messages, my DMs, and they could be in there right now, as far as I know, and it doesn't really matter. Because Good. I want my wife to be able to see, she doesn't look at every DM I send, but she could in any moment. She's got face ID enabled on my phone, on my devices. She right. has full access. And that whole willingness, I don't need to share that with you. I'm not going to share my passwords with everybody, right? So just, but just, and this is the trap, just because everybody doesn't need to know doesn't mean nobody needs to know. And that <laughs> is the problem we get into. So I need to be able to live transparently with a handful of people who are close to me who can say, hey, you know, I was at the DMs and Instagram and that didn't look great. What's going on? Now, hope it doesn't get to that point of a conversation. But if it is, I have people who have that level of access to me that that see it all. And that, that's a really good thing. So what, do, what does that do? Because I'm just as capable of screwing up my life as anybody. Wow. I have the same temptations, 1 Corinthians 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. I have all that stuff inside. I'm capable of royally screwing up my life. But by keeping the guardrails high and making sure that there's no inappropriate conversation that could lead to a flirting, that could lead to, hey, you want to connect, hey, it, we're so far back. It's what Andy Stanley talks about as guardrails, right? So ideally, you stay in your lane. If you miss your lane, there's a rumble strip. If you miss the rumble strip, there's a shoulder. And then eventually, there's a guardrail. You can crash through all of those, but by the time you hit the guardrail, hopefully you are wide awake and you're right back on the straight and narrow again. I think that's a much better way to live. And and that, I mean, I've seen this so often, not that God can't redeem a divorce or can't redeem an affair. He can, but why would you want to write that script? Wow. And those are the wounds that last so long in the heart of kids. It's like, I wish my mom and dad would stay together. I wish my dad hadn't. I was talking to somebody the other night. It's like, I think my, I said, oh, so, you know, tell me more about yourself. It's like, well, we think dad is on wife number three, but we're not sure if they're married. And it's like just one of those things. Again, that's not an irredeemable story. That doesn't mean that person is condemned. It just means why would you write that story when you don't have to? And wouldn't it be better? Don't we all want our kids to say, man, he loved well, 
He had a pure heart. He wasn't perfect. Drove me nuts when he did this. But that's not the story I want for my life. And when you're in a position of leadership, you not only have your immediate circle to think about, but the, the thousands or millions of people who follow you will also, that's one more ding. See, see, told you so. See, there goes another leader. See, yeah. it just feeds into the, the, the not groundless cynicism that's uh-huh. out there about the church and integrity these days. So I just hopefully will not be one more of those statistics. I pray I won't be. Yeah. Wow. That's so good. I don't think uh, we could end with a much better closing charge than that. I'm going to ask you to do something that's probably unconventional. I don't know if you've ever done this on your podcast, but I just sense like a real uh, uh, need just based on our conversation, Carrie. I'd love for you to pray, to pray for the for listening, you know, that uh, God would reveal things to them, that there would be humility, there would be um, wisdom, you know, safety in accountability, things that they would implement. God would bring the right people into their lives. We will include in our show notes, of course, just information about you, where folks can, uh, the didn't see it coming. I mean, it's, it's such a helpful resource, but I think the most powerful thing, impactful thing we could do, Carrie, would just be to have you pray. I'd love to. Oh, Lord God, this is a really complicated time to lead, to lead in and around your church we just see leaders dropping like flies and headlines that make us all a little more cynical, but we believe you're real. Yeah. We believe you're present. Lord, I just want to affirm your love for everybody listening to this podcast. And maybe there is one or two things that need to be revealed in my life, in the lives of people listening. And I pray that you would let us know, remind us that you are a good God who can be trusted good God who can be, who will hold us, who will change us, who will purify us. Lord, I want to pray for leaders who are close to crossing a line, even if it's just the yellow line next to the rumble strip. But Snap us back in the lead. Clear our hearts and our minds. Remind us of what's at stake. God, I pray for leaders who have crossed the line. And I just ask that you would let them know that you still love them and that there may be consequences. You're a God who sits with us in those moments. And I pray that you would make things right in a way that can only happen in your kingdom. And I pray for leaders who maybe listen this long, but think, I think I'm okay. God, would you just give us the humility to realize that we all need you that life and life more abundant is possible. And I pray that you would bring us vibrantly into your presence. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. Carrie, what a privilege. Thank you so much. Michael. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Behind the Seal podcast from ECFA. You know, I was so encouraged by how many times Carrie came back to his relationship with his children his relationship with his wife, and how that was such a motivator. And I know it is for all of us. So I encourage you to keep their faces on the forefront of your mind when applying and deciding and committing to apply the wisdom that we heard from Carrie today. Well, hey, if you haven't shared this podcast, we would be honored if you would. This is a new podcast for us, and we're excited to get the word out. So go to any of your podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, and leave us a review. That would help a lot. 
the Behind the Seal podcast. Maybe you're not tracking with what that name means or what it represents. Hey, I just want to plug, go back to episode one from last year where ECFA president Michael Martin breaks down the history of how ECFA was formed and how the seal came into being. It is a great insight into what that image represents. I'll give you a clue. Today, it's over 2,600 accredited members who are taking, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, taking great pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man.